0: Gentlemen, your conference call is about to begin. Here is your moderator, Ms. Marilyn Stern.
1: Thank you, Bonnie. Welcome, everyone. I'm Marilyn Stern, communications coordinator for the Middle East Forum and your host today. We're privileged to welcome Mr. Douglas J. Fife, Senior Fellow and Director for National Security Strategies at the Hudson Institute, who will give us his assessment of the Trump transition and his perspective on the Trump administration's foreign policy. First, some background on Mr. Feith. A Middle East specialist for the National Security Council during the Reagan administration, Mr. Feith returned to government service as Undersecretary of Defense for Policy in the Pentagon under President George W. Bush from 2001 until 2005. Author of the 2008 best-selling memoir, War and Decision, Inside the Pentagon at the Dawn of the War on Terrorism, Mr. Feith recounted how he advised the President on national security issues during the post-9-11 global war on terrorism, and detailed his key role in shaping U.S. policy planning the Iraq War. We'll turn to Mr. Feith now to discuss our topic, the Trump administration's Middle East policy. Mr. Feith?
2: Thank you, Marilyn. I'm, uh, first of all, I want to say I'm happy to do this call for the the Middle East Forum. I've known Daniel Pipes for I think around thirty five years and uh, admire his work and that of the forum on the question of of what the Trump administration is going to do in the Middle East. Uh, I think it's important to start with the disclaimer that no one actually knows. Uh, no one knows what role Mr. Trump himself will want to play as president um, and <clears throat> If he decides to take uh, personal charge of Middle East policy, then uh, I, I think it will be it will be impossible for anybody to predict what what he would do, um, for the simple reason that nothing he has said or done is for sure an indicator of anything that he'll say or do in the future. Um, I think, though, a few. Cautious points can be ventured. Um, There are some policies that the United States is pursuing, has been pursuing for the last eight years, that are peculiar to President Obama. And these can be expected to be dropped. So, for example, President Obama was focused on improving U.S. relations with uh, countries that were... uh, hostile to us in Iran, in Syria, Russia, China, and Cuba, for example. And President Obama did this, pursued his better relations with those countries at the expense of U.S. ties with Israel and with Arab states that have traditionally been relatively cooperative with the United States, such as Saudi Arabia. Um, so we're in the situation right now, ironically, where President Obama, uh, having chased after Iran's friendship and antagonized both Israel and Saudi Arabia, has actually pushed Israel and Saudi Arabia closer together, um, probably than they've ever been before. Uh, This was not his intention, but it's it's an interesting uh, unintended result of, of his approach to Middle East policy. Now, regarding Israel, President Obama... Came into office believing that the key to making progress toward a, a Palestinian-Israeli peace was to distance the United States from Israel, and and he did create that distance. I mean, he created quarrels on purpose with uh, with Prime Minister Netanyahu over issues like the settlements, and uh, and in particular the issue of the Iran nuclear deal. The President Obama was focused on concluding pretty much at uh, at any terms a a nuclear deal with Iran so that he could forge a US Iranian strategic partnership in the Middle East. And this understandably disturbed Israelis and it in fact it disturbed Israelis across the political spectrum in, in Israel. Um, there aren't that many things. I mean the Israelis are famously uh, political and quarrelsome, and there aren't that many things that unify them, but uh, uh, opposition to President Obama's Iran policy was something that unified a, a large part of the Israeli political spectrum. Um, now, Mr. Trump has not shown any inclination to adopt Obama's, uh, President Obama's approach toward traditional U.S. friends and enemies, so the policies that I just described are not, are we, we can assume are going to go by the wayside and, and President Trump will be taking a different approach um, now mr trump's rhetoric on Israel has been mixed. some of what he has said and done is very friendly uh, He expressed a lot of very friendly thoughts in his APAC speech and uh, and one can see. you know, a a strong, friendly attitude toward Israel in his appointment of David Friedman as uh, the U.S. ambassador to Israel. But some of what Mr. Trump has said is worrisome. For example, his comment that the challenge of Arab-Israeli peace is like the challenge of a business deal. Um, The problem with that is that it, it suggests that he does not understand the essentially ideological nature of uh the palestinian opposition to israel and if 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 he approaches diplomacy from the point of view that it's it's a simple line drawing problem um he is he's missing you know what the conflict is essentially about and uh i think that would bode ill for the u.s israeli relationship uh now, Mr. Trump has repeatedly said that he thinks we can cooperate more with Russia. And there are not many statements that he has made in the foreign policy area uh, as often and as emphatically as his belief that we can work more cooperatively with Putin. Uh, it's unclear what this is going to mean for the Middle East. In Iran, or regarding Iran, Mr. Trump has spoken harshly about the nuclear deal and said he would be tough against Iran. But on Syria, uh, Mr. Trump has put out confusing signals. He's talked with very tough rhetoric about destroying ISIS. But he has not spoken uh, with anything like that uh, hard-headedness about... Ousting Assad, his rhetoric generally has been isolationist. He he doesn't acknowledge that Assad is a key ally of Iran, and uh, he he has not in any of his comments about Syria shown that he views Syria through the strategic lens of uh, of us iran policy he doesn't seem to understand that that if assad survives the civil war and is the victor that it represents an enormous strategic accomplishment for iran Um, now assad is also a key ally of russia whom mr trump wants to cooperate with so you know, how, how he squares his various comments about being tough with ISIS, uh, being tough on Iran, but friendly with Russia, when both Russia and Iran support Assad, is unclear. He, I, mean, I think if you put everything he said together, it just makes for a, a confused picture. I think it's, so it's unclear what he will do regarding Syria. Now, Mr. Trump seems to think that the United States can isolate itself from the pathologies of the Middle East. Uh, I do not think that that's realistic. You can try to run away from the problems of the Middle East, but the problems will chase you and uh, they, they chase us in the form of refugees, of terrorism, of cyber attacks, of weapons of mass destruction, of political instability that affects world oil prices. I mean, the, the basic point about isolationism or disengagement from the Middle East is not whether it's desirable, but whether it's possible. I think it's perfectly understandable that a large number of Americans would like to disengage from the Middle East. Would like to, as President uh, Obama put it, pivot—you know—turn their back to the Middle East so they can focus more, let's say, on East Asia, as President Obama said he wanted to do. But the um, the Middle East does not allow us to ignore it. And uh, you know, a policy of saying that we're gonna ignore it and disengage from it and isolate ourselves from it just doesn't recognize um, this very important point that if you ignore it, the problems simply chase after you. Um, a final thought about um, some of the appointments that Mr. Trump has announced so far. Um, on General Flynn, I think that Flynn was a uh, was you know a valuable member of the intelligence community. Um, I don't know him personally, uh, but I I think he did a, um, a creditable job uh, on the substance of the of intelligence when he was the DIA director, as far as one can tell from the outside. Now he's quite tough on Islamist extremism, but he's been uh, not very careful about preserving the distinction between Islamist extremism and Islam itself. And I think that's a problem because any sensible strategy for fighting Islamist extremism would include a serious effort to try to get the opponents of of the extremists within the Muslim world to to take stronger, more open, more vigorous action uh, against the extremists, and uh, and I think we forfeit the the chance to do that uh, if we if we speak in a way that suggests that the enemy is Islam itself uh the second point about General Flynn is that his connections with Putin's uh, russia I think require us to you know to look carefully because um, especially because Mr. Trump has made so many pro putin comments and I think they have an unrealistic view of the opportunities to develop a strategic partnership with with Putin uh, and, and uh, Putin's Russia. In fact, I think that it, we might even say there's a something of a parallel that where President Obama thought that he could create a strategic partnership between the United States and Iran. Um, and that was an important idea that he brought into the administration and it shaped important policies. Mr. Putin seems to think we can create a strategic partnership with Russia and if that shapes important policies, I think it's going to it's going to create many problems because I don't think it's realistic. Uh, we're bound to be disappointed. We don't have, I think, uh, fundamentally congruent interests with Putin's Russia. Uh, now, on the the issue of uh, Mr. Tillerson as Secretary of State i don't know what his foreign policy views are i'm not sure anybody really does uh again his ties to putin bear watching um i would be interested to know whether he credits the typical anti-israel views of arab oil exporting countries i don't know whether he does but it would certainly be a problem if he does um I think if someone like John Bolton were made his deputy, that could help. Uh, I think that a key uh, a key trait for uh, selecting a good Secretary of State is a willingness to run counter to the advice of the Foreign Service, which dominates the State Department's bureaucracy. Um, that's very hard to do, and somebody like Tillerson, who will be coming into the government without government experience, I think is going to be more susceptible than um, than most people would be to relying on his professional staff. And I think that a, a good Secretary of State would be, because I think the, the Foreign Service in general has inclinations that, uh, toward policies that I think are not are not the right policies. I mean, I'm the, 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 the conservative. The State Department, uh, as an institution, is generally left of center. And so, if, if a Secretary of State is gonna be pursuing a conservative foreign policy, he's gonna to have to do it um, you know, contrary to the wishes of most of the people who work for him. That takes an enormous amount of grit, because the bureaucracy is very skillful in in fighting that its views prevail and and in in doing political warfare you know through the newspapers uh, against secretaries who don't uh who don't subordinate themselves to their subordinates and um i don't know i don't know how Tillerson will handle that uh, and I think having somebody experienced like Bolton as deputy might be helpful um, last point about Uh, personnel on General Mattis as um, Secretary of Defense, I would say he has an excellent reputation as a military commander. My concern about him is not uh, personal to him, but it relates to the idea of a general who served recently in active duty, um, turning around in a short period of time and becoming a top civilian official. I think that the professionalism of our military, which is to say the non-political nature of our military, is one of the prizes, is one of the gems of American political history. It's something we should be trying to preserve. Uh, And I'm, I'm sure that General Mattis himself would not want to be in a situation where he's talking to his generals when he's Secretary of Defense, and there's a controversial matter being discussed and some of his generals are criticizing Trump administration policy, and General Mattis has to sit there wondering whether this person who's talking to him as a, you know, as a military advisor is thinking that in two or three years he could go out, get adopted by the Democrats, and come back in the next Democratic administration as Secretary of Defense. I mean, if that happens, it really undermines the professionalism of the military, and it's a serious problem. And I think that, that rather than have the Republicans just rush to waive the rule that says that you know a um, military officer needs seven years out of active duty before he can take a senior civilian position, that uh, that rule, that law, should not be lightly waived. Um, in conclusion. I would say that Mr. Trump's Middle East policy is likely to be better in some respects than President Obama's, for example, not trying to make a strategic partner of Iran, but it could be worse in other respects, for example, trying to become a strategic partner of Russia. I'm not at all confident that he will be as pro-Israel as many Israelis and conservative American Jews think he'll be. but I would say, you know, along with everybody else who thinks about these things, that the Trump administration is going to be a wild ride. And with that, I'm happy to, to get your comments and questions.
1: Thank you, Bonnie. Can you please uh, introduce our participants?
0: Yes, thank you. Uh, the question and answer period will now begin and we invite your participation. Please note that when there are no questions in the queue, the moderator will ask a question. To join the question and answer session queue, press star 1 on your telephone keypad. If you wish to identify yourself when your line has been unmuted, please do so. Please remember, if you have your phone on mute, take it off mute when you are selected to ask your question. Again, to join the question and answer session queue, press star 1 on your telephone keypad. And we'll take our first uh, question. And caller, if you wish to identify yourself, please do so when your line is unmuted.
3: Uh, hello, this is uh, Marquez. Hess. Uh, my question, Mr. Fyfe, concerns your um, your uh, expectations about the ability of Trump to make some kind of a rapprochement with, with Russia, and you indicated that he might face the same kind of disappointment that President Obama faced with Iran. So my question for you is uh, whether you think that the Iranian and Russian regimes are are that comparable? Iran, being a radical terrorist expansionist regime. Do you see Russia having the uh, the same sort of goals as Iran? Thank you.
2: Uh, it's a good question. No, I don't. I don't think that they are uh, similar in the respects that you highlighted. The uh, I mean, I- you're correct that Iran is a highly ideological regime russia is not any longer um but putin is but the i think that we would have major foreign policy differences we will have we have had and we will continue to have major foreign policy differences with russia even though they are in a number of respects a very different regime from that of uh of iran i think that that russia is uh Uh, very aggressive. I think uh, that Putin's ambitions are uh, to try to ultimately recreate, to the extent he can, the Russian Empire. And moves against Georgia and then lately against Ukraine are an important sign of that. He may try to do other moves in the Baltic states, for example. I think his intention is to destroy NATO and that's something that if he if he accomplished it would be i think very harmful for the united states terrible for the stability of europe um and i think that uh russia's basic you know mode of operations is um is very much at odds with uh american principles and american interests and so while i i'm not saying that it's it's similar to Iran in all respects, it's similar in the one respect that I think it has—it uh, it has a leadership that is hostile to the United States and its interests, and will almost inevitably clash with us. May I? Have-
0: oh, I apologize, Mr. Hess. You could press star one again if you have an additional um, question. In the meantime, we'll go to our next caller. If you wish to identify, oh, I, I'm, I'm sorry, Mr. Hess is back. So, um, go ahead, please.
3: Hi there. Sorry about that. I, I just, uh, I thought your your answer was so interesting that it suggested a follow-up. Um, first of all, Russian aggression. How much do you think that's a product of just taking advantage of opportunities of the, the posture that uh, President Obama has? Um, has directed the United States. And number two, you indicated the Russian objective of reestablishing, as much as they can, the old Russian sphere of influence. Does that suggest, for lack of a better word, an opportunity for a deal? We'll give you some freedom of action in Ukraine, and you give us freedom of action in Iran. Thank you.
2: Well, I don't... um I, I guess uh, on the first point about uh, was Russia simply taking advantage of opportunities. Um, yes, I mean one could say that about any any aggressive regime in history that I mean aggressive regimes in history have taken advantage of opportunities, and in many cases they create opportunities for themselves, and they. And, you know, they, they launch aggressions. And, uh, I mean, you could have said the same thing about Milosevic. You could have said the same thing about Saddam Hussein. You could have said the same thing about Adolf Hitler. I mean, they all took advantage of opportunities. Um, I don't think there's any comfort for us in that. the uh, As for the question of whether you could strike a deal with them, um, I mean, first of all, I don't think we... Need Russian permission. If the United States wants to take action against Iran, we don't need a deal with Russia. And uh, so, I and I, I don't think it makes sense for the United States if you want. If the United States wants the kind of world that it wants to live in, you know, a world that has some, uh, you know, basic rules of behavior, respect for the sovereignty of countries, uh, some kind of order that that uh, you know allows relations between states to c- develop peacefully. We don't want to be in a position where we're sanctioning the kind of action that to- Russia took against Ukraine. That was a, just a, a naked aggression. And uh, I, I don't think it makes sense for the United States to try to make a deal to make kosher, as it were, a uh the kind of aggression that russia that putin launched against ukraine and uh and i also don't think that russia has a lot to offer us uh, russia is in very many ways a very weak country uh, as somebody put it years ago it's, it's basically a third world country with nuclear weapons and uh so I, I don't think that that we should be looking at Russia as a, a great business opportunity, as it were, for the United States to cut a deal.
0: Thank you. We'll go to our next caller. Again, if you wish to identify yourself, please do so when your line is unmuted.
3: This is Larry Gould. I have a two-part question. Uh, what influence do you think Trump's Daughter Ivanka and her husband will have on the president concerning policy towards Israel, and would it be better if they did it informally rather than as members of the administration?
2: Um, I, I don't. I mean, no. I don't know that anybody knows uh, for sure what what. Uh, Degree of of influence they would want to exert on policy toward Israel. Um, I know that there were there were a lot of stories, may or may not be true, that it was uh, Ivanka's husband, Jared Kushner, who who uh, took the lead in drafting the speech that Mr. Trump gave to AIPAC, and. Um, so, you know, it, it's possible that they will have views that they'll want to, you know, that they'll want to push with uh, uh, within the family uh, regarding Israel. Um, Ivanka does seem to be, I mean, when, one can, you know, if one does like, uh, like old Kremlinologists used to do, you know, by studying pictures in newspapers, I mean, it is certainly striking that, Ivanka is in so many pictures with her father when he's meeting foreign leaders now um, so I think the, the answer is she seems to be very influential. He has her around all the time. he has her at all of his top meetings. it seems you know just based on newspaper pictures so um, i I would think she would be quite influential whether she wants to influence him on the you know on the Middle East or on Israel, I don't know um and uh, as far as, uh, you know, doing things informally versus formally, I I have not heard that anybody was considering giving her a position in the government. So I would assume that whatever influence she would have would remain informal.
3: The other question is, do you think Trump will be much easier on Netanyahu if he accelerate developments in uh, Judea and Samaria?
2: I would think probably yes, because I think that's been, that's one of those policies of President Obama that was uh, really you know p- particular to Obama. I mean, past presidents have criticized Israel for settlement activity, but I don't think any past president with the possible exception of Jimmy Carter Made, you know, quite a, a centerpiece of that issue uh, as um, as President Obama did, and uh, it's hard to imagine that that Mr. Trump would would adopt the same view on that that uh, uh, that Obama had. And so, I mean, I would assume that he will be easier on that subject. He's not going to come. I don't think he's going to be coming into office gunning for Israel on the settlements issue, the way I think Obama actually came into office with that thought in his mind. Um, How things play out is another story. I mean, if if President Trump actually thinks that he does have an opportunity because he's such a brilliant negotiator, that he can approach the Arab-Israeli conflict like a business deal and make everybody sit down and make everybody compromise and then he finds that the Israelis are doing things in the territories that the Arabs criticize, and he thinks that's really getting in the way of his deal. I think he, you know it's possible that he could turn around with great anger at the Israelis and blast them for it. Um, I'm not predicting that. I'm simply saying that you know, with with Trump, anything's possible because he's uh, you know he's kind of an erratic character and uh as i said nothing that he has said in the he he doesn't allow himself to be bound by anything that he's said or done in the past and so uh, you know who who knows what he's going to do but uh but i i think if one if one had to bet one would have to bet that he's not going to be as focused on the settlements and on punishing israel for settlement activity as obama was
3: thank
1: you this is Marilyn Stern. We're at 2:31, and I believe we're up against a hard finish, so uh, we're going to have to be completing the session now. Uh, unless you have any time for one last question, or is this uh, a tight? Yeah, we could do. We could
2: do one last question. Sure.
1: Okay, fine. Go ahead, Bonnie. Okay, thank, thank you. you. <clears throat>
0: okay, so please introduce yourself if you wish when you hear your line is unmuted.
2: Thank you for your comments. Uh, This is David Kudish in Aspen. Um, Regarding Russia, there are terrible, terribly negative demographics, and I suspect that uh, uh, Mr. Trump will open federal lands to fracking and other petrochemical action, which declines oil prices or keeps them stable. So that creates a backdrop, which is not helpful uh, to the Russian interests. Uh, I'm concerned about Russian SAM-3 sales to tehran so that whether the united states or state of israel decided to take action it would be much more challenging uh, to whomever took action and um, uh, those are somehow interrelated can you comment please well i think you put your fo- your finger on probably the single most important thing to keep in mind when one thinks about russia policy and that is The the way Putin has structured the Russian economy, it is almost completely dependent on the sale of oil and gas. Um, It was a very fateful decision that Putin basically gave up other opportunities to integrate Russia into the world economy and chose to just remain an extraction economy. But it means that Russia is completely dependent on the sale of oil and gas and and you're right, oil and gas prices have gone come down in part because of uh, the horizontal drilling and the fracking uh, that the United States has done. And uh, part of the reason I don't believe that we'll, we could have a strategic partnership with Russia in the Middle East is that Russia has an overwhelming interest in instability in the Middle East. Because the more instability there is, the more there's upward pressure on world energy prices and the entire Russian economy depends on that. And that's why I think it was so foolish that Secretary of State Kerry kept saying in multiple contexts that he was going to make deals with the Russians based on you know, a harmony of interest between the United States and Russia in support of promoting Middle East stability. It just showed that Kerry didn't, didn't have any understanding at all of what motivates the Russians. Um, so I think your point on that was very well taken. And I think your, the other point you made, which is that we're really concerned about the Russian sale of, it, not SAM-3s, but S-300 uh, air defense equipment. Um, that's, uh, I think, that's an, a, a correct point. And it, it, that represent, those, those uh, missiles uh, represent a threat to the American Air Force and to the Israeli Air Force and it really is an extremely serious problem. And we, we and the Israelis uh, leaned on the Russians for some time to back off on those sales and they held off for a while, but then uh, they went forward with them and it, it has created a problem both for uh, the United States and for Israel.
1: Thank you. Well, we've reached the end of our time. We thank Mr. Fife for bringing clarity to uh, much that lies unknown ahead, and we thank our participants for their questions. This concludes the conference call.